Yes, hello, folks. Welcome to this special episode of Beyond the Pitch. I'm your host, as always, Phil Brand, and I am delighted to be joined with someone that I've came across about six to nine months ago. And it's very rare that uh, I come across someone where just about every tweet I'm consistently impressed. This gentleman's name is Zach Lowy. Um, I'm sure if you're on football Twitter, you've come across this gentleman at some point or another. Uh, consistently excellent, one of the best journalists out there. Fantastic journalism and uh it really is a genuine privilege to have him on the pod. I've wanted to have him on for a long time so let me welcome to the show Zach how you doing buddy hey thank you so much for the great introduction I'm really excited to be on this show as well and uh, really excited for uh an intriguing discussion today hey <laughs> sure first of all my friend uh there are many strings to your bow the first thing yeah. I want to compliment you on is you aren't someone that uh, just focuses on mainstream football. You're someone that digs beneath the lines, if you say. You know, you know you're, you write for a website called Breaking the Lines. But one of the things that I do truly love about what you do is you don't focus on the mainstream. You don't focus on the stuff that gets all the clicks, downloads, and likes. And it's, So whenever I read your stuff, I always feel like I've learned something. You know, With the other stuff, it's so ubiquitously covered. It's hard to get a fresh perspective on it. You do stuff where I'm like, wow, 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 consistently wow. And uh, I must say, um, I've plagiarized some of your stuff in some of my own interviews, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> where I've been asked questions about European football, and uh, yeah. it is consistently excellent. And uh, anyone who is interested in European football beyond the obvious, it, it, it's fantastic. I, I will tweet out a link to your Twitter. But um, tell me a little bit about you, about where your love of football comes from. Yeah, well, uh, absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, and yeah, going back to what you said, diversity, kind of uh, avoiding the mainstream focus, that's something that we are really striving towards on Breaking the Lines. Uh, just over the past few days, we've had an article that I, I wrote on Renan Lodi, who's mm-hmm. experienced uh, a renaissance at Atletico Madrid. Well, not necessarily a renaissance, but he just uh, provided an assist against Manchester United and scored his first ever brace of his career um, so yeah, you can check that out. So that was released today on Breaking Lines. But we've really tried to strive for you know different kinds of content. We had an interview with, uh, for example, uh, the former Tranmere Rovers captain Scott Davies, uh, who had just been forced to retire after spending a year on the sidelines. So we had an interview with him, and uh, we we had a three years, uh, looking back three years ago on Ajax's uh, victory against Real Madrid. So we've had uh, kind of some diversity, both on our written side as well as our podcasts. Uh, and of course, I have my weekly podcast on Portuguese football, Corta Uh We also released a new podcast, The Tactics Room, where we discussed the uh, psyche behind the penalty shootout. So definitely some interesting ones to check out as well. Um, with regards, Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. Go ahead, Phil. I was just going to say, where did your love of football come from? Because yeah. it seems like you have a love of football beyond the obvious. You have a deep love for the game. And uh, where did that come from? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, growing up in the United States, um, I personally was into sports such as like NFL and NBA before I was into uh, watching uh, professional football, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. But my love for the game really actually started by playing it, playing it um, as a kid and eventually getting into it. Uh, Ronaldinho, I would say, was probably the most influential player in really getting me addicted um, to the sport. And so ever since, I would say, the 
the uh, first half, second half of high school, I really just became, you know, addicted to the game, like so many of us are. <laughs> How old are you, Zach? Uh, I am 23, turning 24 in uh, a month. <laughs> Absolutely incredible. One of the things that I also want to commend you on um, is a lot of English-speaking journalists are not polyglots. They do not speak multiple yeah. languages. They speak one language and expect everyone else to speak that language. And I remember watching some of your content a while ago, and once again, my jaw dropped because you were fluently <laughs> translating between different languages. I was actually showing this to my family. Um, as I've got <laughs> Hispanic, some of my family's from South America, from Holland and everything, and I was showing them this. And because again, one of their biggest complaints being English is not their first language is, you, there's there's not enough content offered by English speaking journalists in, in in other languages. How many languages do you speak? Yeah, so I uh, personally speak uh, three languages fluently: English, Spanish, and Portuguese. Um, I would have I I say I would I have a um, intermediate level of Italian, but working okay. towards getting that to become fluent, honestly, because I am an Italian American. And uh, definitely would like to reconnect with my roots. So trying to do that by learning the language. Why Portuguese uh, but, and yeah. Spanish? Why? Yeah. Uh, why did you? How, why Portuguese and Spanish? And how did you develop yeah. them fluently living in the U.S.? Right. So I, um, I would say I, I started learning Spanish in seventh grade, um, and but I honestly say I honestly think that I did not become fluent until senior year of high school because that was like i would say the year where i started to go outside the box in regards to spanish outside the classroom um you know listening to spanish music uh watching spanish movies conversing in spanish with friends you know up from, from there on and and to college uh honestly i think that was what caused me to take the step and become fluent in spanish and portuguese so, okay, so this is a funny story um, uh, and kind of embarrassing to admit, but uh, in the summer of 2019, I was invited to cover the Toulon tournament, mm -hmm. which is one of the premier um, international youth tournaments in football. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I, you know, I, I was able to interview quite a few players uh, a few Mexican players, such as Alan Mozo, who is doing really well and actually uh, should be considered an option at, at starting right back for Mexico going into the World Cup, but doing really well at Pumas players um, that were actually from Ireland as well. Carmen mm -hmm. Kelleher was yeah, one. Even Kelleher, yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to think who else. Um, Kelleher and I believe uh, Connor Masterson. I yeah. think it was one. It's, and actually, yeah. And well, also, what I was going to say, sorry to interrupt you there, is, yeah. you know, obviously Callagher has played for Liverpool in the last few weeks. Yeah. And his first name is obviously in the Irish language, and uh, which is not you know, widely recognized in spoken language, of course. So yeah. It's been interesting for me to listen to people try to get that pronunciation <laughs> down. And of course, the correct, the correct pronunciation of that is Keevan. So, um, because Keevan. Uh, yeah, Keevan. And so, uh, but uh, we, we, I've got uh, Robbie Earl is a very, very close friend of mine. And they were asking me too, you know, what's the correct pronunciation? And it's yeah. it's difficult language because our, we don't V's and all that. And so uh, M and H right. is 
the, but yes, and and so that so you so but Zach, most people who cover these tournaments don't take it upon themselves to try to yeah. learn the language, and most people who do take years to learn them, my friend. Yeah. And I was just going to say that I also interviewed Jason Malumby. Yes. I think uh, currently at West Brom, if yeah, I'm not mistaken, but on loan from Brighton. But yeah, so, anyways, um, the by far the best team at the Toulon tournament was Brazil. And it had players such as Emerson, currently at Tottenham, Douglas Luiz at Aston Villa, um, you know, players of that caliber, and Anthony at Ajax, another player. So, you know, the, the best in the tournament, right? Um, I really was eager to interview players um, in, in, in Portuguese on this Brazil team. So I hit up my designer, Gabriel, Gabriel Foligno, um, and I asked him to help with regards to making up some questions and with the pronunciation of these questions for players such as Lianco, uh, Emerson, and Douglas Louise. Um, so after coming back from France, I really had the desire to learn Portuguese. It seemed really similar and it seemed like a very beautiful language. And honestly, with, my, with just one year, my final year of college, um, and, you know, keep continuing my learning after that, I was able to become uh, fluent in Portuguese. And I've interviewed a few players such as Carlos Mané, mm-hmm. Gustavo Asunção, Neto Borges, Simão Sabrosa. Um, so, yeah, absolutely very proud of these interviews. See, I, it's, it's not often my jaw drops <laughs> in interviewing someone in pure respect and admiration. I have nothing but respect and admiration. In fact, I have a 15-year-old son who is love of football. And uh, I had him over at Old Trafford uh, two months ago. And he was looking for mentors, people to, you know, it's to copy and people to try to emulate. And I told him about you and I said, this is someone you need to pay attention to because this is someone that does it right. And this is someone that doesn't do the low-hanging fruit and also is someone that speaks multiple different languages, which immediately gets people's respect because I think there is definitely a problem also with English translation um, to a lot of things abroad that doesn't get translated properly with context. And I think it really shows enormous respect for other people that you take the time to learn these languages. And uh, I, as a 45 year old man, have just the utmost respect for your journalism, but also for your academics. And I, I think it is just incredible. I think it's a tremendous example to lots of young people in the sports. You know, living in the US, um, we have a fear often of other languages and other cultures that's really insane to me. Um, and um, I think it's fantastic to see you do this. And uh, it speaks volumes for how intelligent you are uh, in so many different ways. And I think it's fantastic. I, I have nothing but the utmost admiration for you. And I think it's wonderful that you do this. So it's inspiring to me. And thank you for being also an example to the generation coming behind you, which is my son's generation, who are looking to guys like you as an example on how to be impact, exceptional journalists. Um, how much football do you watch? <laughs> wow. Well, thank you so much for that. I, I really, I truly appreciate those words. Um, so, yeah, with regards to how much football I watch, uh, quite a bit. Um, there really isn't a day where I do not watch football. Um, and I'm currently watching the second half of Tondela 
uh, Belenenge Saad, the last place team in the Primera Liga with 15 points, mm. uh, currently down one nothing to Tondela, who are um, who are 16th, I believe. Um, so yeah, that, I I as everybody knows, I am a Portuguese football fanatic, um, and I mean. With regards to the roots of, of my passion for Portugal, I would definitely say that around around the same time, uh, you know, my senior year of high school, um, I, I really started uh, watching the games um, because of looking at how many emerging talents come through Portugal, looking at how many players, you know, who we get the privilege of watching them really become uh, the next superstar before our very own eyes. Back then, it was, you know, Renato Sanchez, uh, players like him, and, and Victor Lindelof, for example. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, you know, to, to have that privilege, or as we saw this season with Luis Diaz, uh, to, to become that unstoppable force before our very eyes, it, it's definitely something that hooked me on the league. Um, but apart from that, I also watch a decent amount of Serie A, uh, and the Premier League, and yeah. I think what's what's interesting about this and why this is important, so I look at my 15-year-old son, and he's familiar with teams that he doesn't see on TV through video games. And so you add a layer to that that helps educate him about obscure things, you know, because he, he is growing up with a mixed US-European culture through me. And, uh, and and it is interesting. I'm going to ask you about this, about um, the the, the uh, convergence of both European and American sport and culture and how it's homogenizing. But uh, what's interesting to me is he is aware of obscure teams, you know, teams that I otherwise, he otherwise wouldn't be um, through video games and then see someone like you write articles on this that makes it real for him that helps him educate, helps him become educated on these things that otherwise wouldn't happen. And I think you both support each other, you support, you know, his interest in video games, but also legitimizes a lot of what, um, you know, he, he's interested in, you know, like they do, they pick a, a bottom, bottom of the table team in Portugal to be their manager and try to build them. And then of course, sees content like yours, which helps with that. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about that because um, yep. one of the things that I see, and you're well placed to comment on this, you're a young American kid, uh, is I've been in America 20 some years and I've seen a lot of change in that time in sport and culture uh, and high sports is integrated in the US. But back when I came here, soccer was a very French sport. Um, in fact, all you could see was a random Champions League game on ESPN every couple of weeks. And it was always on tape delay. Um, come a long way since then. And uh, I, what was once two sporting cultures that stood in opposition to each other are now becoming more and more integrated. Certainly what I see in Europe, I remember you weren't even alive when this happened, but when Sky Sports, when, when, when soccer went off mainstream television, terrestrial television to satellite, there was an uproar. Everyone was, we'll never watch it. We'll never do it. It'll never happen. It's, you know, it's against our culture. And of course, here we are. And I've heard this a lot over the years as Americans and American sport and culture integrates itself more and more into European British sport and culture and vice versa. Um, 
Do you see a lot of those cultural and sporting norms um, disappear now where you see Europeans exhibit America and vice versa? Yeah, absolutely. I I definitely think that uh, we are seeing as well a culture change in America. Um, Obviously, football is, is still lagging behind the likes of basketball and American football. But it is undeniable that we are seeing far more fans of, you know, as you mentioned, obscure leagues such as France, Italy, um, you know, a real passion for that across the United States. I think that's something that we've never seen uh, in our lives before. I'm going to ask you about your generation, people that you're hanging around with and younger generations. What's, you know, when you're hanging out with your friends, what's the conversation? Is it, you know, do you talk about football, soccer? Do they look at you like what? Or are they familiar with it? Or what what are you hearing from from people in America, your generation? Yeah, absolutely. Well, my two best friends um, are both diehard Manchester City fans. So, yeah, I mean, we often play... Uh, football together and we often watch football together um definitely you know our our thing to do um i i think that's definitely something that we're seeing far more of though you know across across uh, cultural boundaries you know you have that your your favorite uh waiter from that uh bar who who's really into who's who's from venezuela and who's really into chelsea you know we're seeing so many cross-cultural uh, diversions, I think, which is is really awesome and is only going to uh, continue to improve our nation's football culture. No, look, when I was back in Ireland, it was over there Christmas and uh, New Year's, and you go into a bar and you will see NFL on. And what you're starting to see amongst the patrons there isn't just a passing interest where they're familiar with the most famous teams. Now they're understanding the game. They're understanding the nuance of the game. They're understanding players. They're understanding the game on a whole different level that transcends video games also because uh, neither because of the, you know, the internet and everything else, the these regional boundaries are sort of disappearing. And uh, I see this happening in reverse also where there's much greater appetite in Europe for American sports and I would probably say that the NFL is the world leader in sports marketing beside WWE. Um, yep. So you're seeing that change. So that leads me to my next question. Right. 20 years from now, do we see soccer in this country on a similar level to basketball or NFL, or do you still see it like way behind? Uh, I definitely think it will be on a closer level. But I'm not sure if we can if if we're going to be able to say it's on the same exact level. Yeah. Um, but I, I definitely see the distance, you know, shortening. Uh, me myself, you know, I I, uh, I I love the NFL uh, because frankly, it's it's a sport that uh, kind of allows you to to relax as a fan when you're not covering the subject yeah. when you're not you know writing about it. It's, it's just nice to have something that, you know, you can just really watch as a fan rather than um, a journalist. So I, I really enjoyed the NFL this season. And, uh, yeah, I haven't really watched much of the NBA, but I think I'm going to watch March Madness and then uh, the playoffs. So trying to get excited about that. You, know, well, you better hurry up because maybe you get married, all this goes away. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I want to also ask you, um, when the MLS was being conceived, uh, probably yeah. this country more than any other, 
defined its success or failure through its national team. If the national team did well, that meant the NMLS was doing its job. Uh, but that has changed a lot. And now we see young American players, not just naturalized American players growing up in Germany to American father. I'm talking about players born and raised on American soil that are going over to Europe. And uh, you see Jesse Marsh, I was talking to Grant Wall and Freddie on the podcast, we're talking about this. And there's no longer an American tax, if you want to call it that, where you're suspicious of Americans, their love of the game, while they truly understand it. Now we see Europe's top teams not just sending Americans, but also building academies here and really looking at American talent and saying football is here to stay in this country. Americans have got respect now. You look at the top teams in Europe, we see young American talent. Do we look at, did the younger Americans now say, you know what, regardless, because the Americans didn't qualify for the last World Cup, regardless of how our national team does, we can still feel like we're a successful football nation through the success of our players at club level? Absolutely. I, I think you have to uh, acknowledge that looking at the United States' failure to reach the World Cup in 2019, uh, I definitely think that part something that compensated for that was the likes of Tyler Adams and Christian mm-hmm. Pulisic and Giovanni Reina, uh, you know, doing very well in Europe and overall more and more players, uh, you know, proving themselves in Europe. That's definitely a cause for optimism. Um, and uh, although I do think that the U.S. will qualify for the 2022 World Cup in Qatar, uh, it still remains a very sizable reason for to, to be optimistic as a United States football fan. Yeah, and then, of course, at least the next question, because there's a question that was uh, constantly leveled at the U.S. about the inequality of youth football, that it's only for the wealthy, that if you don't have money, you can't you know, get the right requisite coaching and what have you. Um, do we need to revise? Because Kristen Pulisic also came out in defense of the U.S. youth system. I don't know if, if, if this is, Chris has been truly answered and whether there is legitimate opportunities for kids of all ages, but do we need to revise our opinion of American youth development and the system we have here? Yeah, absolutely. I uh, So I wrote my college thesis actually on uh, this topic um, fo- with a special focus on Latin Americans. Um, but yeah, this is the topic that I, I wrote about. And overall, I, I think that it's clear that the, the biggest inequality problem is not a race problem, mm-hmm. but a, a financial problem. Uh, we've seen so many players uh, fail to get opportunities because they really fall, uh, fall between the cracks you know, looking at the cost of transportation, looking at the cost of registration for these tournaments, uh, it's often a burden that a lot of these kids cannot handle. And often them, uh, they, they tend to come from backgrounds such as Black and Latinos. So it's, it's definitely a problem that uh, has caused, I think, a lot of teams to, to be better in, in searching for these neighborhoods, to giving these kids an opportunity. But there's still a lot of work to be done. You had to say, and we talk about the integration of culture across uh, you know, each other, Europe, South America, and what North America, what have you. One of the biggest criticisms that's constantly leveled at the MLS is it's a closed league. There is no promotion relegation. It's not a true meritocracy. Um, and it's been constantly suggested that they should have it. 
I understood why the MLS didn't have it in the beginning. You're asking people for a big investment. The risk reward is, you know, they wanted to minimize the risk, of course. Now we see tremendous appetite in this country for people with money to buy MLS teams or soccer in general. Uh, do you feel that, one, the country would accept promotion relegation? And two, is it a sign of maturity uh, that football has reached a level of maturation in this country if they, if they bring it in? Yeah, absolutely. So with regards to promotion relegation, honestly, I, I think it is something that would that would improve uh, the quality um, of, of U.S. football. I think that's definitely one of the things that makes uh, football the number one sport in the world, especially in Europe. You know, having these teams uh, being able to bounce back through the divisions and uh, the the drama of the relegation fight. I definitely think that's something that adds quality to the game. But personally, I just do not see it happening. There's too much money um, as it is in these fixed positions, uh, I think, to for, for, for the owners to take the risk of their teams being demoted to a second division. I don't, I don't think it will ever happen in MLS. I think the thing that concerns me, Zach, is if we look at um, the fight between promotion and relegation, closed leagues, closed leagues, that's one in the argument, because if we look at Super League in Europe and we look at the Champions League format, um, the one that usually wins is the one that usually makes the most money. And I have a concern that it's going the opposite direction where Europe has tried a couple of times to shoehorn in leagues that are closed. Uh, obviously, Americans take the blame, but I don't think that's fair because I think uh, Europeans are certainly more than happy to embrace this ideology. And um, it wasn't, you know, yes, Americans may be, this may be where the birthplace of these ideas, but certainly Europe wasn't against bringing these uh, types of systems in. Do you fear that European football, because listen, when I was growing up, I remember Star Bucharest. I remember Porto winning the Champions League. I remember teams from, you know, Star Belgrade when, you know, we didn't have the dominance, the financial dominance that we have now. And I'm, I, I'm, we'll never get that back, I'm sure. But do you fear that in Europe we're heading towards something that resembles the NFL or a closed league? Definitely. I mean, I, I think that looking back a year, uh, to the Super League's, you know, brief existence. I, I definitely think it's something that uh, while while the Super League failed to uh, institute itself, we, we still have those aspects um, in, in European football. I, I think that looking at the top clubs, uh, such as Bayern Munich, Juventus, Chelsea, Manchester City, Paris Saint-Germain, there's just far too much money at the top. Um, and, and for me... Uh, I, I think that I, I would like to see something done. I'm not sure what can be done, but uh, I remember reading a, an article by Gabriele Marcotti. Yeah, um, and I think it suggested that like for, for the amount of clubs for, I think it was with regards to uh, uh, the, the amount of loanies or mm-hmm. decreasing squad lists. Uh, I definitely think that would be an interesting uh, option. Because, you know, we see it, I think, perhaps more than any other league with regards to the Portuguese league. Um, looking at the top three teams, Benfica, Porto, and Sporting, you know, there is just such a tremendous gap between those three and the rest. It doesn't even matter if, if a team like Benfica or Sporting is having a very poor season. 
you know, uh, there really is a such a sizable gap between those three and Braga, who they themselves have a pretty sizable gap on the teams uh, behind them. So Boa Vista, Vitória de Guimarães, Estoril, and Gil Vicente. But Gil Vicente, I think, are actually only uh, four or six points behind Braga. So uh, watch out. Still only, you know, nine nine games left. <laughs> I will certainly keep close eye on it. I do actually really enjoy your Portuguese coverage because, as you quite rightly say, a lot of future superstars. It's also a wonderful gateway to Europe, uh, to the to main countries in Europe. I want to be careful what I say here. It's not Portugal's the main country, but you know what I mean? One of the bigger leagues in Europe. And yeah. certainly it's a wonderful gateway for a lot of South American players to come through. Uh, and uh, Portuguese teams, of course, are magnificent at developing young talent. Uh, you mentioned one of them earlier, Luis Diaz, of course, going to Liverpool. Uh, he's had a fantastic start to his Liverpool career. How do you say that should Liverpool fans be about Luis Diaz? Absolutely. I mean, Luis Diaz, uh, we've seen it so many times in Portuguese football, really a player who, who became too good for the Primera. We've seen it with João Félix, Nuno Mendes, uh, you know, so many other players on Radamel Falcao, James Rodriguez, uh, quite a few of his c- compatriots. Um and yeah, I, I think that it, it really was a privilege to see him at Porto. Uh, when he came in 2019, I think he was expected to be uh, the long-term replacement for Yassim Brahimi, who left in the same summer. Um, but, you know, credit to Sergio Conceição. He did not immediately um, put him into the XI, you know, he made him wait for the opportunities. He made him work for, for, to, to have those chances. So um, it, it really actually was not until the, this, this season where Luis Diaz became a starter under Sergio Conceição. And uh, that was due to a few factors. One, Musa Marega leaving to Al Hilal on a free transfer uh, another was the decline of Tecatito Corona, who came very close uh, to sealing a deadline day move uh, at Sevilla, but just could not get that over the line. Um, so those two factors really contributed to Diaz becoming a starter. And he took the opportunities by the scruff of his neck and just uh, continued to work hard and continue to deliver, um, both in terms of uh, end product as well as just getting Porto out of some sticky situations and coming in clutch on so many times. Um, Really one of the biggest factors why they could enter the January window on top of the table. Um, So, so consistent, so lethal. Uh, It really was a privilege to watch him. Let me ask you about Sergio Contisau because um, interesting guy in the sense that um, Porto, of course, rely heavily on developing young players and selling them. Yeah. And it doesn't seem like Sergio Conceição is that bothered about playing their best young talents. Um, I, I think he loaned out Dio Giulette last season. Yeah. And uh, I know his son is there. It seems like he's more focused on playing a lot of their older players. Yet Luis Diaz, you know, Porto sold him. Uh, they need to sell young players. Um, so how does that work? Was Sergio Conceição focused more on experience rather than playing the young players? Because uh, you would imagine that Porto need him to play those young players. Absolutely. And it's a criticism that has been levied uh, upon Sergio Conceição for quite some time. 
by myself uh, as well as many others. Um, but I do think that we have to acknowledge there has been somewhat of a change this season. Um, and that has come off the back of a 2021 uh, U21 Euros that saw Portugal reach the final and lose to Germany. Um, and various players on that Portugal side were had belonged to Porto and had actually played a part uh, in Porto's uh, 2019 uh, UEFA Youth League triumph. Um, and so this season, we have actually seen Vitinha, a player who uh, never really got the opportunities that he deserved under Sergio Conceição and never really was an option. He was loaned out the, the previous season to Wolves, where Nuno Espirito Santo as well did not really uh, appreciate his qualities that much. Um, and it really wasn't until this season where Vitinha began to get opportunities and has eventually uh, has eventually become a real stellar asset in the midfield double pivot alongside Mateo Soribe, the Colombian veteran who's more of a midfield destroyer, but is also capable of you know getting forward um, and making some danger himself. But yeah, Vitinha definitely been. Uh, a, a massive reason for their revival. You can see, I believe he was inserted into the st starting lineup for Porto, I want to say around uh, December, November. And since then, uh, Porto have been uh, just absolutely phenomenal. Uh, they have not lost a single league match since October 2020. Uh, and overall, just grinding out some very impressive results, have a six-point lead over uh, Sporting, and Vitinha has no doubt been a big part of that, as well as Diogo Costa. Mm -hmm. Diogo Costa, um, I believe 22 years of age, uh, 23 maybe, um, and uh, has, has become a starter in goal. Uh, he started the season due to the injury of uh, Augustine Marquesin, who had been the starter uh, previously but was injured and has, has held on to the starting spot ever since. Uh, we also saw Joao Mario, um, a player who has done well, fairly well at right back. Um, and so those these players, as well as uh, Fabio Vieira, a player who, while he has not been starting that much over the past month or so, has, has still uh, finally broken into the Porto team and has had some very impressive games for them. Uh, and and it, I definitely still think is an asset. Uh, for Sergio Conceição. What about um, a player that I hear quite a bit of now at Sporting Lisbon, uh, Paulinha? Uh, he's a young uh, midfielder for uh, Sporting. How highly would you rate him? Yeah, absolutely. So João Paulinha, um, I, I first I, I first came across him, I believe, in the 2015-16 season under Jorge Jesus. Um, but again, so it was Jesus who brought him there, I believe, and. Uh, but did not have too much opportunities at Sporting before going to Braga, where he actually ended up uh, uh, linking up with Ruben Amorim and actually doing very well in midfield um, before returning to Sporting and playing a vital role under Amorim uh, for their first league triumph in 19 years. Palinha, I would definitely say, is more is is not quite as as mobile, but is definitely a, a physically. Uh, imposing a bulky midfield destroyer 
um, perhaps in a similar ilk to Ndidi, if you will. Um, mm. Definitely something, definitely a player that Manchester United uh, need a, a, a pro- profile, shall I say. Um, and I think that Paulinha, his definitely his strongest attributes are his ability to win uh, physical duels, uh, to to win the ball and high up the pitch and to instigate counterattacks. Um, that's definitely something that made him an important player last season. But his minutes have actually taken uh, a bit of a decline over the past few months due to the emergence of Manuel Ugarte, yep. who arrived yeah, in summer from from um, And I actually think that uh, because of Ugarte's very good performances. Uh, in in midfield alongside Mateus Nunes, I actually would not be surprised to see Sporting sell Palinha to a Premier League club and really bank on Mateus Nunes um, as well as Manuel Ugarte in that double pivot. Zach, I've got about 3,000 questions that I want to ask you, but I'm conscious <laughs> of your time. Uh, last couple. I uh, want to ask you about uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, young uh, player that, of course, has <laughs> received a lot of discussion yeah. and debate, as you'd imagine. Uh, is he declining? Um, I don't think he's playing in a team that's particularly, you know, it's hard, it's particularly easy to look good in. Um, what do you think Cristiano Ronaldo, uh, do you think he is still capable of playing at the very top level week in, week out? Do you see a decline in football? Or what would you, how, how would you assess him right now? Yeah, honestly, I think that uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, it's, it, for me, it's fair to say that this is not a flash in the pan. And this is a real uh, decline that we've seen over the years with regards to Juventus and Real Madrid, a decline in his abilities that definitely, I think, have taken an all-time low uh, at Manchester United right now, and uh, looking at his, you know, the decision. I believe it was a an injury. I'm not sure what if it's been disclosed um, on what kind of injury it was. Supposedly a hip injury. Hip injury. Okay. So you know, and and that and maybe he actually did have a hip injury. Um, that's something that you know we've discussed. Nobody nobody avoids with regards to. Um, with regards to age. Uh, did you see what his sister posts. said? What What did she say? So there was a post on Instagram that she ended up liking, uh, and yeah. it was a post that said that he was not injured. Uh, he was upset. He went back to Portugal because he was being left out of the team, and uh, you know their day was ruined, more or less. Uh, it wouldn't <laughs> surprise me if he was left out, to be honest, given the strength of the way... City play, um, and and I think United need something more mobile. But um, Ranić, I you know we've been here before. He said the same about Jesse Lingard, similar about Cavani, and they've refuted him. And he said his doctor told him on Friday that he had a hip injury, couldn't train Friday, couldn't train Saturday, so therefore he couldn't play. So I I kind of do believe that, but um, maybe Ronaldo still wanted to play, still wanted to be on the bench. I don't know. Um, I want to ask you, Zach, before you go about uh, Bruno Lage, okay? Um, yeah. At, uh, Wolves, because Wolves, of course, are a football club that um, have a tremendous tradition now of playing Portuguese players, and everyone knows how good Ruben Neves is. Uh, but uh, Bruno Lage, if I'm pronouncing that right, uh, is someone that came to the attention of most uh, British uh, football fans this season, of course, replacing Nuno. Uh, yeah. 
bit of a tough start, but really since then has done a fantastic job. Um, I, he's really, really interesting guy. He's not, there's not a ranter and rare. He doesn't get out and scream and point. And yeah, even when they score late goals, he's still quite calm and collected. Uh, seems like a really, really good coach. Uh, seems like a really good pick for Wolves. Uh, how would you rate Bruno Lage? Yeah, so Bruno Lage, um, I first really came across him when he became manager of Benfica midway through the 2018-19 season um, at following the sacking of Rui Vitoria. It was a very poor start to the season for Benfica, and it looked like they were going to lose out on the league title uh, to Porto, who were the, def- who were the defending champions. Um, but one of the things that actually really impressed me about Bruno Lage's time at Benfica is we saw a lot of uh, young talents from the academy uh, start to get chances in the starting lineup. We saw that with the likes of Ruben Diaz, Ferro in central defense, um, as well as the likes of uh, Florentino Luis in midfield mm-hmm. later on, um, as well as Joao Felix in attack. Um, you know, th- for me, that was something that I think a lot of Benfica managers before him and a lot of, in general, a lot of Portuguese managers do not have uh, the cojones to do, shall we say. Um, but definitely uh, a, an impressive first few months in the Lisbon club, um, leading them to a, a league title. And uh, overall, something that we have not seen from Benfica and for over the past few years since then and that we most certainly are not going to see uh, this season. Um, for, for some reason, I'm, I'm not really sure. Lodge was not able to put it together in the second season in 2019-20. Uh, ended up being sacked and replaced by George Jesus, which uh, obviously bringing the hype from a near-perfect season at Flamengo. Um, you know, I, I definitely can see the appeal behind wanting to bring JJ back, but... Um, overall, I, I think it's clear to say that Bruno Lage has been uh, far more successful than JJ was in his second spell. And uh, lastly, Ruben Neves. Um, Ruben Neves is a fantastic player, someone that uh, Manchester United fans like a lot. Uh, he, if you had to pick one between Neves and Paulinha, uh, who would you pick? Yeah, it's a very interesting question both for Portugal as well as Manchester United (laughs) you know um, I think that uh, with regards to the national team uh, obviously some very important games coming up I would probably rather have Palinha because of his physical ability his ability to recover the possession Uh, yes he has missed out on some time this season due to injuries and suspensions but overall a very valuable presence to have especially with uh, Renato Sanchez suspended, um, the likes of uh, Joao Cancelo as well suspended, um, and Nelson Semedo injured. I think, you know, he definitely brings that physical and defensive presence that Portugal will be needing uh, if they are to get past Turkey. Zach, let me sneak one more in. Darwin Nunez. Um, lots of people yeah. looking for a striker outside of Lavic, outside of Holland. Uh, right. Lots of clubs linked with them. Uh, how highly do you rate Darwin Nunez? Absolutely. Darwin Nunez, uh, Uruguayan, Uruguayan striker who 
came through Almeria, who who uh, came through obviously on Uruguayan side before going to Almeria, but eventually going to Benfica um, for a club record fee. Overall, I definitely think that the the fee, the the weight of that, uh, really ended up hurting him in his first season. The pressure, um, he was not able to. Uh, impress in what was really a chaotic season um, for Benfica, especially falling after the transfer fees that they spent. But, you know, looking at this season, while it has been an equally uh, poor season for them in the league, and once again, you know, missing out to a two-horse race and title fight to Porto and Sporting, uh, I definitely think that Darwin has been a bright spot for them. Uh, running away with the league title, with the uh, top top scorers title right now, and I believe the only player uh, to hit 20 goals. Um, I think Ricardo Horta is 15 goals right now, so definitely shows the gap uh, in form between them. Um, definitely, I, I, w- I will say that there are plenty of things to work on for Darwin Nunes, and he is not as polished as some other players in this category, such as uh, Victor Osiman. Definitely some things he needs to polish uh, with regards to, I think, hold-up play, uh, making better decisions on the counterattack, as well as better passing decisions. Um, I think those sorts of technical attributes are definitely things that he, he needs to work, work on. But he's you know a strong and quick center forward who's really good at cutting inside um, from, from the flank and, and using his strength to get into those goal-scoring positions. Um, a player who's uh, really good to have if, if you want to if you want someone who's going to chase down long balls and overall a player who I think is going to earn a big move uh, away from Benfica this summer. Folks, if you've listened to this, you'll know that uh, this gentleman has a comprehensive knowledge of Portuguese football and beyond. If this guy isn't worth a follow, nobody is. Don't forget to follow <laughs> him at Zach Louis Z-A-C-H-L-O-W-Y. Um, I will also tweet out uh, links to him. And Zach, just quickly before you go, tell me, you're breaking the lines. That's your creation, your baby. Uh, that's your website, right? So uh, people can also find your content there, right? Yeah, absolutely. You can find our articles at breakingthelines.com or btlvid on Twitter. Um, As I mentioned, definitely make sure to check out my recent article um, on Renan Lodi, um, as well as we've got another episode coming up in the next few days of the Cortalinius podcast. Um, I spoke to a fan of Vitoria de Guimaraes, uh, today, so really excited for that one to come out. Vitoria de Guimarães are definitely one of the most supported clubs in Portugal. Um, really a massive presence, uh, so really excited for that. And one of my goals, actually, for the second season of Cortelinhas, the first full season of Cortelinhas, um, one of my goals is to collect a fan from each of the Primeira's uh, 18 teams, so still have a few teams that I need to collect, such as uh, Istorial and Vizela, but a goal that I'm slowly but surely working towards and hopefully I can you know, achieve uh, before the end of the season. <laughs> Zach, it has been a privilege for me to do this. And, uh, the sad part for you is I'm probably going to be a nuisance to try to get you back. <laughs> because uh, 
I have got a thousand questions I didn't get to ask you, but I'll tell you something. Yeah. I learned a lot from this podcast. Your content is truly exceptional. You're a wonderful young man. You're one of the best followers. And I said this a couple of weeks ago on Twitter, that this guy is easily one of the best followers on Twitter. Thoroughly, thoroughly educational for me, uh, entertaining. Your work is truly outstanding. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. And uh, Please, please, please come back and see me, will you? Thank you so much. Once again, it was a real pleasure. And uh, yeah, I really hope to be a regular guest uh, this year and uh, really excited for, for more collaborations. In the Don't week. say that because I will have you on every week. <laughs> I'm telling you. <laughs> You'll be speaking Irish next day. <laughs> like you're a total gentleman. So thank you so much for doing this. And for Bob and my son as well, thank you so much. And all the best. See so, ya. Yeah. Right. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Uh, thank you. And you got a birthday coming up soon. So uh, happy birthday. <laughs> thank See you, everybody. you so much. Thanks, Zach. Take care. See bye. Ya, bye. <clears throat>